Alright, this is John Hennigan. We're back on the Old Time Radio Show with our buddy Don Kemp. What's up, Don? Oh, not a whole lot, except uh, well, recently I was talking with uh, the writer John J. Sullivan. We were talking about early blues and how it developed, and of course, you don't have a real good idea how that happens. I think if you think about our... We can only go back like to the 1890s, you know, at the at the earliest, to say, well, that's when you know Frankie and Albert was composed or became popular, and that's when Staggerly became popular around the same time. And the, all those are done as blues; they're blues ballads, is what some people call them. But they're very obviously, you know, have blues tonality, and uh, anybody listening to them would think of them as a blues rather than a ballad. Right, I would. Yeah, I would I would I would say that for sure. Okay, then we go to the like 1900s and you get at the time living people, living artists said that like the first the most common blues they heard at the, at that time was Don't You Leave Me Here hmm. or uh Crow Jane, which has, you know, which is sliding delta, which is uh right. Uh, up on the hill, eight-part blues and E, basically. Yeah, it's a, it's an it's an eight-part blues and E, and that got me to thinking that probably most of the early blues were either eight or sixteen bars. I mean, I'm sure there were nine-bar blues, maybe even twelve-bar, you know, formatted A A B, twelve-bar right. blues, but they right, weren't right. as popular as the music whatever they were playing, which was ragtime breakdowns. Um, God knows what else, you right. know, and and a lot of pop songs and pop be, songs too. Yeah. Because of course, if you're playing for a white audience, you better know some white songs to make you some money. Right, right. Yeah, and then you get about you get into the early teens, and you have like sixteen bar blues, like Robert Wilkins. That's no way to get along. Which he, I remember someplace he specifically said he learned that around. 1914 from another musician, uh, Buddy Taylor in Hernando, hmm. and that was his song. And that's a 16-bar blues. And I also, when I was in Lynchburg, I heard from this guy Brown Pollard, who was one of the bigger names. He had stopped playing, but he was one of the bigger names in Lynchburg, although he never recorded. Who said that when Jordan moved to Lynchburg around 1912, he picked up. Uh, church bell blues which is also like i think a 16 bar blues or maybe it's a 12 bar blues i have to i'd have to listen to it i can't <laughs> even remember but i mean that was like a very early blues huh. and i think what happened is that with the female singers uh doing steady for the first four at least the first four years first five years of recording doing a lot of like nine bar I mean, 12-bar, you know, A-A-B blues, that sort of, like, kind of settled it, kind of, you know, formatted. Also, I think, maybe even some A&R guys thought, oh, that, I, now I know what a blues is, I'll ask them to do that. Huh. Because there were plenty of, well, there weren't plenty, but there were, like, lots of 12-bar blues that had, that scanned differently, like A-B-B or B-B-A, or you know, or, or AAA, just repeating the the same line three times, like um, I think Kentucky Blues, and even has 
uh, by Big Boy George Owens. I think all he does is just repeat the, the line three times. Right. Uh, so it wasn't until, like, you got into when the shift started to become more urban that the the form was kind of fixed. You still got, you know, some some freely adapted things, and of course you got great 12-bar blues, but I think before that it was more of a mishmash. They were just songs. No, no one, especially musicians, were terribly concerned that, oh, this is an 8-bar song, this is a 16-bar song, this is a 12-bar song, I'll sing it this way, maybe some other day I'll sing it something else. Right. But I think with the recording industry, sort of like tweaked the music, as Richard would say. They tweaked the music so that it became more formulated. Yeah. And I mean, w w what's your speculation on why they would do that other than just marketing? Is that early marketing? I think, I think it's probably early marketing. They knew this was a blues. They asked, they yeah. asked them to do a blues. So and everything else, they want to throw a label on it and say, this is what you're going to get. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, they were, since they... It took them a long time to know the first thing about the product anyway. Right, you know, right. And especially like when, uh, in the 30s, when Lester Melrose became A&R, you know, talent scout and A&R guy for Bluebird, you know, you got pretty steady 12-bar blues. Pretty steady. And Mayor Williams on DECA, pretty steady, the same thing. Maybe a little looser in the early part but you know by by the mid 30s everybody's doing 12 bar blues you get exceptions of course but not frequently anymore right whereas before it was just you know look at blind a lot of blind lemons early songs are all over the place but as he got maybe his repertoire he, he exhausted his repertoire or maybe a lot of his later songs have comp your composer credits so that you know they were in the 12 bar format hmm. and most of most of his later stuff is, is that way what what rescues a lot of them is either his singing or the accompaniment sometimes he's just working with his standard 12 bar blues and it's okay but it's not as exciting as the the, the early stuff he recorded yeah, and he doesn't seem as excited about it either. No, I On a lot of those recordings, he just yeah. kind of seems to be going through it. Yeah, going through the motions. Blake was like that a little bit uh, for a certain period when he did kind of standard blues and then, you know, 12 bars. Now, and th there's, a, there's a question. Uh, do you think a guy like Blake really played that much like straight, slow blues? As He, re he seemed to record so much of it, but it seems to me like that... That might have been more what they were pushing for, right? I think that's probably that really true. suit his style. Well, I think that's true because, but he does some fantastic blues, although no, he does. I'm not saying they're not, some of them aren't great, <coughs> but it just strikes me as as he's doing it, it. It just gives me the feeling that that wasn't what he was doing. Yeah, I think there's a certain period, like uh, like maybe 1928, when Lemon and Blake were doing these, you know, kind of slow 12-bar blues. And they're okay, but they're nothing compared to, like Blake later on did some gr stuff as good as he as he ever did, um, like uh, especially in accompaniments with uh, Irene Scruggs, who recorded as Chocolate Brown. And his latest stuff is 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 
is quite decent too. But there was a period when he was just doing slow 12-bar blues, and uh, they were kind of ho-hum compared to, you know, his rags and some of his early stuff. Yeah, I agree. I agree totally. Um, I think I was like I was talking with this guy John Sullivan. I think he asked me, he said, "Well, what do you think, you know, caused the blues?" And I said, "Well, there were two things." that probably had some effect. One was like in the early 1890s, all the southern states, they kicked out the Yankees with uh, the election of, I think, Rutherford B. Hayes, I guess. You know, there was all the Union troops withdrew. They, the federal government had no more messing around with the uh, uh, southern states. And that's when you started getting Jim Crow laws, which were pretty punitive. I mean, not only did whatever gains you know black people had made were not only lost they were sort of like pushed back into legal slavery you know a, a much as as much more segregated i guess uh and i think even though you still had musicians playing for whites and blacks i think they maybe started developing more of their own music to play for themselves right right possibly because we have no idea what they were playing before then i, I agree with Richard and before the blues that the, there was a shared repertoire between whites and blacks in the uh, 19th century especially fiddle and banjo players I think another thing but but again the ones that you know a lot of stuff that survived was generally of white origin because you know right, blacks right. didn't write down what they were singing and and they weren't as conservative in their culture as white people were, especially rural whites, right, so who were still singing 200-year-old songs. Right, and the little bit of glimpse that we get into that music, it's all more the conservative white music, no matter who's playing it. Yeah. Like the stuff that was recorded in the 20s that sounds like it could be, you know, 20, 30 years old. Oh, at least, yeah, a lot of them. I mean, the, the pop songs that a lot of the country singers did were like from the turn of the century, like uh, Riley Puckett singing Rainbow, which was like... A, I think a pre-1910 hit by Billy Murray. Right, right. You know, Come Be My Rainbow. And a lot of songs like that, similar to that, were of that ilk. That Bully of the Town was from the 1890s, you know, which was a song that was in both cultures. And then you have those rare glimpses into what, you know, black people might have been playing uh, for themselves, like Mysterious Coon or something like that by oh, Alec I, Johnson. Do you think that's an... Where do you think the I think that's probably that's a minstrel song. Yeah. That's a minstrel song, and I think black people probably heard it, you know, because they went to, you know, carnivals and shows, and um, at that time, you know, even if they didn't like it, they weren't going to say anything about it. Right, right. Uh, but, but it seems like a, a lot of the, the black uh, versions of the minstrel songs, like they would change the words, make them kind of not only less racist, but make them a little... Like for instance, like take like Frank Stokes' version of "I Got Mine," where you know he takes out all the the racist stuff yeah. and kind of changes the, the theme to like, "Hey, f you, I got mine." Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Right. Kind of gives you that little like you know spins it yeah, around, like, like he's giving you you know the bird or something as much as he could. Yeah, without no. saying it directly. Yeah, yeah. That that's my feeling, anyways. All right. Well, you got a you got a record to spin for us. Oh, I got something. Speaking of the kind of old music they used. To play this is an example so we might as well play it this is not a blues although it has a blues feel to it to break down 
breakdown it's one of the few breakdowns that were actually were recorded commercially because it's it's such a fun record uh, but I'm I, I don't know why we don't have more of them unless it was just sort of like considered passe an old form that uh, I suppose you could dance to it oh that was incredible yeah and for anybody who doesn't know that's of course Charlie Patton doing hanging on the wall you know it's funny I gotta be honest like I always thought that version was like far inferior to the Paramount earlier version and the first time really hearing that in this room off that record that's unbelievable I, I love that oh, oh it's, my God, it's, it's a good beautiful. version of it I, I don't mean, think I ever heard a good transfer of it so I mean really hearing the guitars you know really really I, I love the way he just 
drops beats whenever he feels like it. Just know, totally turns great. the time around. I his know. His voice is great. He's doing. He's throwing his voice with the two different you know call and response. It's, it's, it's actually, great. It's actually maybe a little bit more individualized than the earlier version, which was only yeah. Well, it was like five years earlier. Well, now that I hear it, I, I like it better. I, mean, I don't know about. I like it's different. I think he had a better guitar for the Paramount sessions. I think that's the only thing. The I guitar's not recorded as well in the in these vocalian sessions. I mean, it's more in the background too. Something, not that any. I mean, of course, all Paramount recordings sound terrible, but mostly because of the way the records were pressed. The, the Graftons are re, are really pretty good. Yeah, the ones that were, and and a lot of it was. I'll tell you one thing. They did. Paramount didn't use the best shellac, and they overused their stampers. But by 1930, when sales dropped precipitously. You not only had better recordings at Grafton, but they weren't pressing like, you know, 5,000 records on one stamper, right. which they, I don't know, they did that for sure, but they certainly overpressed until, you know. There's almost no music no left music on some left. of those, yeah. Um, so I think that accounts for different because a lot of those Charlie Patton, uh, later Paramount, like High Water. High Water sounds great. Yeah. And that's a Grafton recording. And even though it was a a big hit is probably his last really big hit because it's it's one of the most common patents is it well it well i thought pony was the pony's the most common right. i said it was one of the most common it's probably it's commoner than pea vine uh it's dirt road is probably more common it was a little bit earlier and mississippi bow well that's mississippi bow weevil and scream in holland i I used to see a lot of copies of that. Now I don't see any, of course. But right, right. But it, at least uh, all the common ones are masterpieces. <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's, it's hard to find, you know, like a, a pad record where at least one side isn't a masterpiece or just a great record. Well, know? that's the way I feel, yeah. But the, you just basically described probably my top four. <laughs> well, speaking of, you know, that made me think, a patent and something I said earlier, don't you leave me here was an early blues and you know, uh, Jelly Roll Morton said, oh he wrote it in 1904, <laughs> yeah sure right Jelly, uh, but a lot of people remember that's among their earliest songs that they considered blues, and it's uh, eight bar blues, that they considered a blues, but I also think Elder Green's an older song, I think Elder Green was kind of transmogrified into Don't You Leave Me Here. Huh. For some reason, because, uh, for whatever reason, maybe Elder Green wasn't a, uh, a wide enough known figure to merit, you know, being turned into an icon like, you know, Staggerly or Frankie and Johnny. But uh, Blind Lemon knew Elder Green. He knew it be, he recorded a, Elder Green's in town before Charlie Patton. So he knew it, and Papa Charlie Jackson uses on I'm Alabama Bound, he uses an Elder Green verse, and he was from, what, New Louisiana, I believe, right, New Orleans. Right. So that shows that a song with the same format was widely known in three different areas before recording, because uh, Papa Charlie was the first black male to record. The reference to Elder Green is in there, and it was in two different, you know, was in Mississippi and in Texas too, pretty much probably at the same time or earlier. Now you told me a story once, and I believe it was uh, about 
in the early days, I can't remember if you were looking for Charlie Patton or if you were looking for Bertha Lee, but you, you found Bertha Lee, right? Yes, actually, Bernie Klatsko found Bertha Lee living in Chicago. And he asked me to go see her and interview her or talk to her at least. I think he did call her up on the phone and he told me. And I decided on my own pretty much to take Bertha Lee to see Howling Wolf. I told you that story, right? Not on this show, so I'd like to hear Oh, okay. Well, I called up Bertha Lee, told her that I was, you know, a fan of her husband's and of hers. And uh, I knew that Howling Wolf was playing at Silvio's that weekend. And so my girlfriend and I went to pick her up. And she was a, a fairly large woman. Not heavy, but she, she was like about 5'11", close to 6 foot. And uh, it was a February... You know, the weather was like this, and I remember we helped her out of her building, and we were on either side of her because she was afraid of slipping on the ice, and we took her to Sylvia, Silvio's, which was in uh, the west side of Manhattan. And we went west in... West side of Chicago. West side, west side of Chicago, sure. My God. <laughs> uh, so we went in there, and um, we got a table close to the bandstand, uh, to the... Uh, to the left of the bandstand, like sort of in the front, they were sort of like in a semicircle. And uh, Wolf came on, and he he sat down, and he was going to play, and he did a song, and then he turned, then he sort of looked, and he looked hard, real hard, and he picked up a guitar, and he did uh, "Saddle My Pony." Huh. And that was kind of thrilling. I mean, just to see oh, him sure. do that, you know. And then afterwards, he stopped, you know, like the band, you know, I think he took a break. I think he actually did a couple songs before that. And he went over and he said, Hello, Bethany, it's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, completely ignored us. Completely. <laughs> so, that, you know, they chatted for about five minutes, you know, asking about, you know, what happened to, you know, so-and-so and, -so and uh, how you've been doing, all that stuff. And he had the biggest head. I've ever seen that any human being. He was huge, right? He, he was, was huge. Like six, he, was, seven. he was a big guy, very, you know, very husky, not fat, but husky. Right. And but he had a, he had his head was the size of a large watermelon. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, bigger, twice as big as Jay Leno's head. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but that that was amazing, and. Um, if I had known then what I would know you now, I would have like tried to interject myself in the conversation. But you know, Wolf was so formidable that you didn't want to, you know, interrupt. And then when he was three, he went back and uh, played some more songs. We stayed for a set, and then we left. And it took Bertha Lee back. And now, were you, were you able to talk to Bertha Lee at all about uh, Charlie Patton playing, or I mean, how does that go? Well. Basically, it was by this time she had been contacted, you know, by Bert. She had been contacted by Bernie, and I think she had an idea that there was, you know, that Charlie, that people were interested in Charlie Patton, and you know, and to her or something. I talked to her a, a little bit about the recording session, which she said it was in a hotel in New York. She had never been to New York. I don't even think she had been out of Mississippi except maybe to Memphis or Arkansas. And Charlie played in the lobby for the patrons. And they did a little sightseeing. 
but he wasn't feeling well that well so he stayed in a hotel a lot where they were staying and um, I didn't know that much about the relationship then you know she said yes she'd go out sometimes with Charlie and sing and he'd accompany her usually not so much at jukes but you know uh, at get you know like at barbecues or picnics and stuff like that and you know of course it was like Charlie died in my arms type of thing uh, and of course at that time what did I know? I was what? I wasn't even old enough to be going into Silvio's at the time. Well, maybe I was. Um, yeah, I was old. I was 21 then. But I didn't know that much, you know. I, if, I remember like 10 years later, I said, gee, I should have asked about this, 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 and this. And um, then it was too late. Yeah, yeah. That's still amazing, though, you got to talk to her. Yeah, yeah she, was a, she was a nice woman, you know, and she was certainly... You know, kind of, I think she was kind of tickled that, you know, we came and picked her up and took her to see Wolf and, you know, and talked to her about... Well, it had to be a pretty odd thing for her to have fans of her music, right? I mean... Well, sure, because I don't think, you know... Who was even aware of these records other than a few crazy white collectors like yourself? Yeah. Like, literally, back then, probably just a handful, right? Uh, Just a handful, well, I mean... No, there was probably, you know... Maybe maybe a hundred people who knew about that worldwide. I'm sure there were people in in Europe, and there were like you know. But I mean, none of these people had access to her, so that no, was, yeah. they had access to her, and they didn't even really have access to the records except what came out later on Origin or on on the Charlie Patton record, the second Charlie Patton record, I think. So it was. I think she was kind of, you know, knew that uh, something was up, and she she talked a little bit about the old days, but not as much or in as, in as depth as I would have liked. She made it seem like it was, you know, an idol. It was very peaceful kind of, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. relationship. Which you, you probably would have had to talk to her twenty times to get to the get to the nitty gritty brawls. And yeah, get, getting hit over the head with a guitar and. and what breaking did, Charlie's arm or whatever. Was and really and what, what did you think when he got his throat cut by a jealous girlfriend? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm gonna play you one of my records here. Right. Uh, fairly new acquisition, and then I'm, I'm gonna follow this up by a story that um, you once told me about this gentleman. Okay.
Correct me if I'm wrong. You told me a story back when you were working at the Chicago, the Jazz Record Center. Uh huh. Sleepy John Estes was around there sometimes, right? Yes, he was. Big yeah. to record. I think you told me a funny story a while back about him uh, going through the bins, picking out different records and learning different kinds of songs. No. Oh, oh, you know what? You know who that was? Who? That was. Uh, I did that talk in Chicago with uh, Bernie. Um, what's the owner's name of the jazz record center? Oh, Bob Kester. Bob Kester, sorry, yeah. Yeah, did a, you know, we played the Chicago Blues Festival, uh-huh. and we did a talk, and he, he was telling the story about Sleepy John Estes was staying there for a little while in the basement. Yeah, yeah. And uh, said he would go through the new releases all the time and pull out, you know, records like Johnny Cash, just random records and go down and learn them. And he said to him, you know, one day he just said, hey, John, you know, wh- why are you learning all those tunes? He said, well, if you're going to play a house party, you got to know at least five to ten of the most current, you know, popular tunes. you got to know country, you got to know pop, you got to know, you got to know them. He's like, oh, he's like, well, when was the last time you played a house party? He's like, oh, you know, 20 years ago, but you never know. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of funny. So you got a record there for us? Uh, let me think. Let me look, I don't have a record. The records are going to be on you this time. Well, actually, I do have a record. You want this side? Yeah, that's the better side, I think. Even though we were just talking about Chicago. I woke up this morning Year round for my shoes Oh, I got this Whoa, walking through up this morning, being round her from a shoe. But you know about it, I got to eat or walk and Don't I feel like blowing my world lonesome home? Got up this morning, my little boy. He's walking along, I feel like oh, my lonesome home. Well, I 
Best record. That is all right. Yeah, I know. It's Man. it's even different enough. He goes through seventh and fifth fresh, which Sunhouse never does. On that at least on Mark Black Mama. Yeah, that is great. Such a I mean what a, what a singer, what a performance. Of course that was Robert Johnson doing walking blues. For anyone who doesn't know, I can't believe you took the time to listen to this show and you don't know, but you never know. You know. So, I could follow that up with a guy who probably knew Robert Johnson. Maybe you can tell us better after we hear this. Okay. Just give me five days more and down on Parchment Falls Just give me life this morning Down on Parchment Falls I wouldn't hate it so bad But I left my wife and mom Oh, goodbye wife Oh, you have done gone Goodbye, why all you have done gone? But I hope someday you will hear my lonesome song. Men, I don't mean no harm. Oh, listen, you men, I don't mean no harm. If you wanna do good, you better sell for a small phone. We go to wake in the morning, just do. Dawn of day, we go to wake in the morning, just a dawn of day. This is the end of the sun, that's when the wake is done. I'm down on old partner's phone, I sure wanna go back home. I'm down on no partner's phone, but I don't want to go back home. But I hope someday I will overcome. 
parchment farm. That that makes me just think that one reason blues became popular is it was so perfectly fitted to a guitar. <laughs> and in the 1890s, guitar started becoming an instrument, uh, you know, it's portable, it was easy to play, you know, easier to play than a fiddle, I imagine. Yeah, and up until that point, for string instruments, banjo dominated. Yeah, and uh, within, you know, a generation, fiddles and banjos were pretty much passe. You get them, I'm sure, on the, in, the, in the 20s because you get people from the, you know, early part of the year, uh, early part of the century, the 20th century, who learned from, you know, people around them and maybe even earlier. But the most of the younger generation, the ones who were born after the turn of the century, stuck with the guitar, maybe the piano. Huh. But uh, certainly hearing a, a fiddle or a banjo after like 1932, Except for the Sheiks, I can't think of hardly anybody. Pop, Pop, Charlie Jansic, Jackson made a couple records. That's it. Uh, occasionally, there might have been some others. Uh, there was a fiddle player in St. Louis in a, some 1934 Decca's. I don't even know who it is, but that's you know after 1934, yeah, it's you got the, huh? the Chapman brothers. Well, they're the Sheiks anyway, so right.
that's Whistler and his Jug Band doing Low Down Blues. That's a nice record. Don, you still actively collecting? Uh, not actively, but I am collecting a little bit. Um, I occasionally I make occasionally make bids. Sometimes I pick up a couple records, junking, but nothing. You know, usually it's post-war country. Um, so I haven't been like super active collecting but I still like it you know I still listen to them every day almost what was the best record you ever found junking rattlesnake by Charlie Patton hmm. I think I told you that not story. bad let's hear no. it again okay um I was in Virginia it was after the 4th of July uh, 1976 I went into this uh, store which usually had records and they had a table like this maybe even bigger just like foot high piles of records, more than I've ever, more than I've ever seen in this place before, and uh, it was a lot of pop and a lot of uh, you know country, mostly country records. And uh, I started going through them, and I was I was in a frenzy, you know, like so many records that to go through, and there were a lot of Orioles. In fact, half of the uh, or a, a large portion of the records had an Oriole right on top, a red label Oriole, huh. very early. So I was going through them and I got so excited I forgot where did I leave off, which ones didn't I look through. So I picked up a stack and looked under it and there was a record under there that uh, you know I didn't even recognize and then I flipped the stack over <laughs> it was Rattlesnake by Charlie Patton. Wow. And I almost dropped the stack, but you know, because like, the last <laughs> thing. it was mostly country, Columbia's. There were some jazz records, you know, like a Clarence Clarence William on 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 Oriole, uh, but there was mostly just country records, of which I bought. Let's see, thirty records out of like maybe three hundred. You put that rattlesnake right in the middle when you brought it up to the register. Oh yeah, and I they were fifty cents a piece. Nice. And when I got to the thing, I said. Um, I'm buying a lot of records. Why don't you give me a break? She said, all right, three for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you had the balls to push it, huh? Yeah, that's I had great. the balls. I mean, that's... that's uh, now, what was the Charlie Patton going for in 72, like that? No, it was 76. It was 76. probably... Um, it was a couple hundred? It was hundreds, but I don't, I don't know. That one might have gone for more. They were going for a couple hundred. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was... I had only paid like a hundred dollar, hundred dollars at that point for one record, and that was like in 1974. I bought, I got a new copy of Taylor's Weatherbirds. It cost me a hundred dollars. That was the most I had spent on a record at that time. But boy, I'm sure glad I found Rattlesnake. It's one of my favorite Charlie Pattons, if not my favorite. Yeah, I like the uh, the slide, the backward slides from the seventh, the second fret. Yeah, they kill me. <laughs> and it's a good vocal, a real good vocal. And it's got Henry Sims. Who, yeah, it's great. Who I like. Phenomenal. Yeah. Right, I'm going to spin this. This is uh, Fury Lewis, Dry Land Blues. Ooh, a test, no doubt. Water, baby, and fire dry land. 
If you don't want me, honey, let's take hands in hand. I'm going so far, I can't hear your rooster crow. I'm going so far, can't hear your rooster crow. This is my last time ever knocking at your door. My last time ever knocking at your door. Don't cook me no dinner, baby. You want me no clothes. You won't do nothing but walk the Hanley road. Man, if you love you, woman, better measure it in a cup. So she has no quit boy, won't leave you in tough love. Take my woman, but you ain't done nothing smart. Well, I got more than one woman playing in my backyard. When storm comes and it blows my house away, I'm a good old boy, but I ain't got nowhere to stay. In the trouble, yeah, in the trouble everywhere. So much trouble floating in the air. What you gonna? Trouble get like mine. What you gonna do? Your trouble get like mine. Pretty good tune. Yeah, it's that's cocaine, <laughs> uh, sliding delta. That's right. We that's what we were talking about, about earlier. I see that for a sec. Yeah, eight eight bars in in E. Yeah, of E, wonderful E. Yeah, but his version is uh, particularly nice. This is actually a test pressing. Yeah. I'm white label. Yeah, don't ask me when or how, but no, it's it's from the master. I know it's from the master. Let me just see. I'm going to see what take it is. There were two takes of it. Oh, this is take one. This is funny, this is the third test I've seen. Or third test I know about. I wonder if somebody Of dry it. land? Yeah, of dry land. Huh. Someone had access to the master maybe? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually I know the two tests are actually on Victor, white Victor label. Oh, really? Huh. And I know about They came from... Um, either Bill... I think they came from Orrin Capnews, who was doing the X series. Okay. And they got two. They got test pressings of two takes of everything they were interested in uh, reissuing. 
so they can see which take they want. We got time for a couple more. All right. So I'm gonna keep, you know, keep them rolling. Trying to dazzle you as much as I can. I'm dazzled. There's only so much I can do. That's a great. That's a, such a great record. There's maybe one. I think there's one copy of the Victor. Really? Wow. Yeah, that uh, Harry Smith had it. Wow. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't exist that I know of. This one probably is not anywhere near as rare as that, but still pretty good. You know what it is, or you want me to tell you after? Well, if I don't know, you can tell me. Oh, you're going to know. Oh, all right. Might as well tell our, our listening audience. I'm going to play Frank Stokes' It Won't Be Long Now. Okay. You like that side better? The Knee High Mama, the other side. Mistreatin'? Oh, no, Mistreatin'. Play Mistreatin'. Okay, I wonder. You might as well have another Crow Jane. Okay. That's what it is. Okay, so this is Mistreatin' Blues by Frank Stone. When did you get that? This is, you know, I'm kind of playing you my newer acquisitions. Yeah, I'm trying must. to dazzle you. Well, I'm dazzled. That's one of my favorite Stokes, and I don't have it. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. let's give it a spin. Are you me? I baby drove me from your door. I heard the good books say, Mama, you got to read just what you sow. Well, if you don't want me, I mommy don't have to run no store. I can find more good cows than a bad no drinking. A woman neither by your good hair. I put the treatment that you give me, baby, call me for me. Are you me? Be brown skin and your hair long is more. If you mistreat me, woman, you show God lost your Another John and a woman win the care trouble on. She make you think through the daytime, trouble you all night long. She make you think you're right when you know good and well you're wrong. She got a pocket full of green bag of mouth stuck full of And it wonder what the reason I baby I can't rest that night for the gal that I'm crazy about have took my appetite.
don't really like that. It's yeah. a little more, a little more varied than Furry's version, but he's not playing as fast as Furry was either. Yeah, I really like that too. I've been so obsessed with the other side. I haven't been listening to this side uh -huh. enough. Yeah, it is good. He sure likes that slide down the down the neck. Yeah. He does that in D too on something. Can't remember what though. Well, Don, I want to thank you for doing this. We got time for one more record. Play your favorite. My favorite. <laughs> Oh, uh, no. one of your one of your favorites. Oh no! Why did you say that? Okay. That's oh, a terrible, I know. That's a right. terrible uh, position to put me. Oh, in. I know. Maybe maybe you can play. Maybe you can play the eight bar blues. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, Lost Lover Blues by Lottie Kimbrough. Going away blues. That's great. Either side. You pick. You pick. Oh, let me see. Going away. Okay. I've got Lost Lover. I don't have Going Away anymore. Okay. Once again, you're listening to the Old Time Radio Show with our buddy Don Kent, explaining to us uh, the possible birth of the blues, sharing some cool stories, some cool records. Thanks, Don, for doing it. No problem. Anytime. It's always fun. And this is uh, Lottie Kimbrough with uh, the Pruitt Twins. Or Twin. Or Twin. Maybe one of them on guitar, I forget. Doing uh, Going Away Blues. Adios. <laughs> Even if we're not gonna, you know, even if the show's over. 
show's over when we say it's over. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> When the train comes along, or Jonah in the wilderness. When the train comes along. That's what They're I was, both good. That's what I was going to pick. Oh, another Henry Thomas? Got to live life. Guy's entitled to a hobby, right? Guy's in, but he's not entitled to too many Henry Thomas records. <laughs> <laughs> no, he isn't. This is number three for me. Oh, sorry, number four. Number oh, four. really? What else you got? Life is good. I got um, Fishing Blues, yes. which I got from you. Yeah. And I got uh, John Henry. Yeah, which everybody has. Yeah. Me anymore. I don't have any more. And I got one other which I can't remember. When that train come along, when that train come along, I'll be 
Just kidding.